Our living conditions have been massively changed. After I used to get a kilogram of meat for 80 or 100 Egyptian pounds, I get it for more than 200 Egyptian pounds. I wake up in the morning restless and confused about what to do. One kilogram of onion has reached 10 Egyptian pounds. Maybe I can get it, but a lot of others can't. Why, Mr. President, is this the case? We are living in a famine. This is a famine. This is not okay. Umm Mohammed is an Egyptian housewife. She's 61 and lives in the capital, Cairo, with her husband. Like many across the country, Umm Mohammed has watched helplessly as the country's economy has continued to deteriorate and felt the growing pressure put on her and her family and many other families like hers. The economic problems in Egypt have become so severe that the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, have stepped in to help again. But nothing in life is free, including $3 billion IMF loans. As part of the deal, the IMF wants Egypt to implement a raft of reforms. These reforms will not be easy. The proposed structural reforms will take time to implement and deliver the intended results of reducing vulnerabilities to shocks and bringing about a stronger growth outlook. We look forward to supporting the authorities' efforts in delivering their reform priorities in the next in the near term and over the 46-month program duration. Ivana Vladkova-Holla, Assistant Director and Mission Chief for Egypt at the IMF, set out these terms at a press conference on January 10th. This week, we tackle the unfolding economic crisis in Egypt. We ask what the terms of the IMF deal are. Can Egypt implement the reforms to bring about this stronger growth outlook? And how will the Egyptian military the most important economic actor in the country, react to the strict conditions that could undermine its position. I'm Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. Of course, many countries in the world, even developed countries in the Western world are experiencing this cost-of-living crisis. This is Umberto Profazio. Currently, uh, associate fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and the Maghreb analyst for the NATO Defence College Foundation in Rome. With a population touching on 110 million, almost a third of the country is currently experiencing poverty. Uh, and nearly 60% or a poverty rate are at risk uh, of, of poverty. I was also struck by the, the figure that two out of three people are now uh, currently on government-subsidized uh, uh, food. This problem has, be, has been created by the, the external shocks, of course, uh, and uh, the loss of revenues from the tourist sector, which is particularly important for the, the economy of Egypt, uh, is also uh, to take into account. By October 2022, food prices had risen by 37% from the previous year and have continued their upward trajectory since. Earlier in the year, the much-needed foreign currency reserves held by Egyptian banks fell from $37 billion to $35.5 billion. This withdrawal contributed to the devaluation of the national currency, the Egyptian pound, meaning that the money that Egyptians do have is now worth less than ever. Uh, things have massively changed uh, in the past year, especially. Due to the devaluation of the Egyptian pound, 
which has lost uh, about uh, 51% of its of its value against the, the US dollar. The wincing sour cherry on top of this terrible economic Sunday is the country's high level of debt. Between June 2013 and March 2022, Egypt's foreign debt tripled. Nearly half of Egypt's state revenue goes to servicing its debt, which amounts to 90% of its gross domestic product, or GDP. Economics can be tricky, and if you're lost at this point, don't panic. In short, the Egyptian economy is in a bad way, and subsequently, the Egyptian people are feeling the effects. But how have things gotten so bad? Where did it all go wrong? Uh, yeah, I think it's a mixed bag because from what we have seen in the past few years, uh, there has been a lot of mismanagement in the Egyptian economy. But at the same time, uh, there are deep-rooted problems. Since independence, the country uh, has witnessed a strong public intervention in the economy. Uh, during the Nasser period, uh, we had the nationalization programs. But after the end of the Cold War, there's been a kind of liberalization. The authorities attempted a privatization process. Throughout its modern history, Egypt's state has controlled a large majority of the country's economy. At points, they have made vague attempts to open the economy up, bring in private enterprise and generally liberalise the investment space. These efforts have either failed, not gone far enough or never truly been implemented in the first place. And more recent global events have also taken a hammer to the Egyptian economy. The most recent economic problems, I think, that uh, can be categorised as uh, external shocks. Of course, we can mention the the COVID-19 pandemic. That was a huge moment for the, the world's economy. Uh, but also the, the supply chain disruptions that came uh, immediately after that. And Egypt was uh, the epicenter of that disruption uh, with the episode of the Ever Given that was struck in the middle of the Suez Canal. And of course, we should not forget about the, the conflict in Ukraine, which has put Egypt's economy under, under a massive pressure due to the fact that Egypt uh, is the world's largest importer of wheat. And according to some figures, it imports about 80% of uh, its wheat from uh, Russia and, and Ukraine. These global shocks have also impacted the vital tourism sector in Egypt, a vital source of foreign currency revenue. The president of Egypt, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, has also become increasingly keen on mega-projects with no obvious value. These have included building a brand new capital city from scratch, expanding the Suez Canal and extensive road building, among other projects. These massive state projects have been cited as being responsible for depressing the private sector, discouraging foreign investment and increasing Egypt's reliance on foreign credit. Enter the International Monetary Fund. After months of wrangling, they agreed to loan Egypt $3 billion that will be delivered over 46 months. With this loan, the IMF is seeking to achieve three main objectives in Egypt. Back to Ivana Vladkova-Holler, Assistant Director and Mission Chief for Egypt at the IMF, to explain. First, exchange rate and monetary policies will be focused on a permanent shift to a flexible exchange rate regime that would help absorb external shocks and rebuild reserves while gradually reducing inflation. 
essentially strengthening the Egyptian pound to avoid further devaluations, as recently witnessed. Second, continued fiscal discipline and fiscal structural policies aim to maintain market confidence and ensure the downward trajectory of the debt-to-GDP ratio while strengthening the budgetary process, increasing transparency and improving the budget composition uh, so as to allow for an expansion in social spending. In short, spending money sensibly and knowing what you're spending the money on and keeping an accurate record of what's been spent and where. Third, a structural reform agenda will help promote private sector investment and secure strong and inclusive medium-term growth, including through reducing the role of the state in generating economic activity, leveling the playing field between state-owned enterprises and private companies, and removing barriers to trade. This final objective is the key. This is the objective that the IMF needs to work for Egypt to have any real chance of fiscal stability. It lies in the last part, state-owned enterprises. While they're not saying it out loud here, by state-owned, what they mean is military-owned. The military interference in the economy or the military involvement in the Egyptian economy really started in the days of Gamal Abdel Nasser in the 50s and 60s. This is Marina Otway. Marina is a Middle East fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Centre and a long-time analyst of political transformations in the Middle East. But then it escalated greatly after Sisi came to power. So it's a long story that had a very new development, that is the the military really becoming the backbone of the Egyptian economy. While we can point to the moment when the Egyptian military became involved in the economy around the same time as Nasser was in power, between 1956 and 1970, judging the extent of their involvement is a far more difficult task. The quote-unquote official government line claims that around 5 or 6% of the Egyptian economy is run by military-owned companies. Other studies, produced externally, have suggested that the military share in the economy is as high as 80%. The true figure is very unlikely to be 5%. It's also unlikely that it runs to 80%. But it is high. Too high for many. A World Bank report at the end of 2020 said that the military accounted for a considerable proportion of all state-owned enterprises. There are many different ways in which the military is involved in the economy. There are some where the military is directly involved. That is, the military runs butcher shops. It manufactures pasta. Uh, it runs service stations, gas stations. You can add to that list with tobacco, cars and car parts, shops, media and entertainment, hotels, clubs, resorts, rest houses, parks, sports facilities, cinemas and theatres, supermarkets, semiconductors and transportation system equipment and technology hardware and equipment. Then there are the big aspects of the Egyptian economy where the military is involved. And for example, the military under Sisi are the main contractors on on all the big projects that the, the country is carrying out. Projects like the construction of a new capital city. It's worth pointing out that the Egyptian military aren't bumbling around a construction site, tripping over toolboxes and dropping iron girders. 
they appear to have a sense of what they're doing. It's also worth pointing out that they do not undertake all the work themselves. They will contract out some of the work to the private sector. The important point is that they are in control and they get to decide who gets the contracts. So they may well be competent, but are they actually any good? On the big projects, it's difficult to answer the question of how good they are because there is nothing to compare to because they have they have all of that sector in hand. For example, one of the white elephant projects, in my considerate opinion, that CISI uh, started is the building of a new capital. You know, the new administrative capital, which is halfway between Cairo and Suez. That's a project that was run by the military. Would somebody else have run it better? You know, we'll never know. The military uh, did take in hand the broadening of the Suez Canal. They controlled the um, industrial zone that is being developed along the banks of the canal. Such as the control of the military, no other companies can ever really get a look in. They are not in competition. They're the only real players in the game, a policy which does not tend to help build a healthy and growing economy. Their control over large-scale construction projects is perhaps only rivaled by their control over land. Two laws handed Egyptian land over to the Egyptian military. Law 143 of 1981 and Presidential Decree 152 and 153 of 2001. They stated that the Ministry of Defence had the right to declare any of the so-called quote-unquote desert lands as quote strategic zones of military importance, end quote. These laws meant that civilians had to coordinate with the MOD for any use of this land, which comprises an estimated 95% of Egypt's total surface area. Now, a lot of the military land essentially is worthless until the government builds a road. You know, for example, there is now a new road between Cairo and Suez. There is a much improved road uh, in the desert between Cairo and Alexandria. And all along those roads, you see a lot of development. And that development is on land that belongs to the military. It's very murky how it's sold, how is you know, who cashes in the money and so on. But some of this land that they originally when Nasser gave to the military was worthless, now is acquiring a real economic value. And there is no way to calculate what that is. You may be thinking, what's the problem with all of this? Well, for one thing, their income-generating businesses are exempt from taxes, from conducting inventories and valuations. If you were to say that this gives them a slight edge over private business in the country, then you'd be wrong. It gives them a massive advantage over private enterprise, while denying Egypt huge tax revenues. They are at the front of the queue, and sometimes the only people in the queue, for massive government contracts and pay no taxes. It is this issue that gets to the crux of the recent IMF demands for reform, which come pinned to the $3 billion loan. In exchange for the loan, the IMF wants to see a massive reduction in the state presence in the economy. 
Ivana Vladkova holler again at the IMF press conference on January 10th. So, um, on the state-owned enterprises, again, um, I'd point there to um, the authorities' uh, state ownership policy. The authorities' reform program is based on, on giving a bigger role to the private sector, which is very much needed. Um, and it is very important that the state ownership policy is endorsed at the highest level, including by the president. Um, it is important that it is being made public, um, and it is important that the authorities are uh, committing to provide information uh, through an annual uh, report on the progress in the implementation of that policy. This is a very important step uh, towards reducing the role of the state in the economy, um, and we stand ready to support the authorities in the implementation of this very important reform. Thank you, Ivana. The state uh, ownership policy is the Egyptian response to the IMF's demands for an economic level playing field. Drawn up last year, it promises that the state will withdraw completely from up to 79 economic sectors and partially exit some 45 others within three years and increase private sector participation in public investments from 30 to 65%. It would represent a massive shift in ownership within the country and would have far-reaching implications. Now all they have to do is follow through with some action, which means complying with the requested demands of the IMF. It's a question of not whether they come. It's not a question that they say, no, we are not going to do it. No, we are not going to make our uh, participate in more competitive bidding and so on. The question is to what extent they are going to manipulate the situation. Sadly, there's no real expectation that Egypt nor the Egyptian military will comply with the IMF's demands. The question is, because it's also murky, the question is, what are they really going to do? You know, when you say a playing field, I mean, they can hide what they are doing very easily. But if you talk, the IMF is asking for a playing field. When you talk to, to, uh, uh, to Egyptian businessmen, not all are unhappy with the military because they don't, they don't necessarily see it as competition. Within Egypt, there are those who have the favour of the military and make large amounts of money. The reforms sought by the IMF represent a massive change, and with change comes uncertainty and risk. And with such a proposed shift, there is the question as to whether the private sector in Egypt has the capacity to absorb the business from the military. I think, yes, that capacity is there. How long it would take for it to expand sufficiently? How long it would take for the government to create a regulatory environment that allows businesses to expand more easily without being totally bogged down in, uh, you know, in red tape and uh, permits and so on that takes months and months and months. And the reason why I'm somewhat sceptical about this uh, statement by Sisi that he's going to get, you know, out of the sector. I mean, Sadat started talking about that. Mubarak started talking about that. It's not the first time that Sisi himself talks about that. But in the end, you have, you know, a little bit here, the the government is selling some of the uh, state-owned companies. Unfortunately, the ones it puts on the market are the ones that are losing money. And then it's difficult to find buyers for them.
But again, I certainly don't expect by any stretch of imagination a wholesale divestment of, by the government of the state-owned companies. If the military decides not to cooperate with the reforms, then there is the risk that growth will continue to evade the country and another IMF loan will be needed further down the line. A very real prospect. This $3 billion loan will be the country's fourth IMF loan since 2016. Maybe President Sisi could put his foot down, tell the military to change. In recent years, he has become the sole ruler of the country, eliminating, sometimes brutally, any opposition. Sisi is totally dependent on the military. The military puts Sisi in power. And if military gets disenchanted with Sisi, they are going to overstop. Sisi cannot be in power. And that also goes to the, you know, all your question about can Sisi impose on the military the observing the IMF requirement and so on. The military has power over Sisi rather than Sisi having power to the, over the military. They are going to put somebody somebody else in his place. And he cannot and he cannot resist. If Sisi can't get his own military to comply, then will the IMF be able to turn the screws? And it's also to what extent the IMF is willing to keep their feet to the fire when the IMF reaches these agreements with the country, right? The degree of compliance is never 100%. It's usually more, maybe 40%, 50%. And then the IMF has to decide at which point is... Uh, we are going to move on cautiously and give them the benefit of the doubt and go on to the next tranche. And, you know, things are never black and white in the agreements with the IMF. But I don't think there has ever, ever been an IMF agreement that was respected 100% by the country with which it was reached. And so in, even in this case, it's going to be how smart are they going to be in manipulating the situation to satisfy the IMF without losing their control and so on and so forth. And I don't know. All I can say is that the military is pretty smart. The, the Egyptian military is pretty smart. They have been in business for a long time. At its core, Egypt's economy is lopsided. The reforms called for by the IMF, combined with the recent loan, will not serve as a financial panacea but if adopted, can certainly be the first step to growth. President Sisi will have to give up on his dreams of securing foreign investment while also retaining control of state assets. And the military will have to act against their own personal interests and start to act in the interests of the population. Some have suggested that the country is too big to fail, that help will always be provided by the likes of the Gulf. But this sort of thinking will not help the 30 million people in the country that live on less than $2 a day, nor the other 30 million people that are following shortly behind them. If the Egyptian military won't change, the government can't make them change, and the IMF will look the other way, could Egypt replay the events of 2011, when millions took to the streets, demanded change, and successfully brought down a dictator? Marina Ottaway. One thing that we know is you cannot predict when an uprising is going to take place or widespread 
social unrest is going to erupt. What we know is that the conditions out of which another uprising could grow do exist in Egypt. But let me also point out that those conditions existed long before 2011, and nothing ever happened. Final words to Umberto Profazio. There are no signs at the moment that there is uh, pressure on the streets. Um, But if uh, there is no immediate relief for the population, of course, this could create troubles ahead. But I don't see uh, right now any particular uh, political party or kind of a figure that could lead the protests in in Egypt. Uh, The crackdown of the past uh, few years has completely eliminated any kind of opposition. And this is why they can still get away with it in terms of uh, uh, economic reforms, political concessions, and uh, the cost of living crisis. Uh, But things can reach a boiling point, uh, especially if in in the next few months uh, things don't improve for uh, uh, ordinary Egyptians in their day-to-day life. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.